0: Welcome back, everybody. Um, and uh, by the way, we're going to just slightly shorten the duration this time. So for your clubhouse <laughs> planning purposes, uh, we'll go for an hour. Uh, so we'll go until about 8, eight o'clock, give or take. Um, but we have a just another raft of just incredibly good questions tonight. So we are going to launch uh, straight in. So the first topic is one that actually people have been asking about for a while, and we, we didn't do it for a while because it almost felt like it was too self-referential. Because, you know, there's the you know the rule number one of Clubhouse is that every conversation on Clubhouse eventually becomes a conversation about Clubhouse. Um, <laughs> but we've gotten the question actually many times now. Um, and so let me read two two different uh, versions of it from this week. So uh, Kareem Fanous asks, uh, how can uh, venture capitalists be simultaneously investors and uh, growth engines for the companies they invest in? Uh, perhaps a case study on A16Z and Clubhouse. And uh, Tim Amon asks, um, I once heard you explain that A16Z was modeled after the Hollywood Talent Agency, uh, CAA, or Creative Artists Agency. Um, how do you approach curating talent as it relates to Clubhouse? And so, Ben, why don't you start?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you, you know, we get a lot of credit for things that happen on Clubhouse and probably more than we deserve in some ways in that um, – Clubhouse is just so visible. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, we win a lot of competitive deals in Silicon Valley, but Clubhouse is the one that everybody saw us win because all the VCs were in Clubhouse, uh, when we won the deal. So it kind of went to a higher level in the same way in terms of what we do as a firm. So kind of, we were modeled on CAA and very specifically, um, CAA wanted to build a network that was so powerful that anybody with talent, any actor, actress, director, would prefer to work with CAA. Um, And this is kind of the original CAA founded by Michael Ovitz, uh, would want to work with CAA because they'd get access to this very, very powerful network, which was much broader than any individual talent agent could ever assemble. And so that, you know, kind of has been the design of the firm that we would build this very, very powerful network that would enable all of our kind of companies or anybody who we invested in to kind of have this superpower of being able to command this massive network. And we've spent 12 years building it. And, you know, we've got over 200 people in the firm who just, you know, work on on building this out. And what you kind of saw in Clubhouse as it relates to us is you know, basically us, you know, applying that network to their specific business need. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, you know, and and that also kind of intersected in a different way with CAA and that, you know, it actually involved talent itself, uh, meaning, you know, kind of people from the creative industry in Hollywood and so on, uh, which, you know, is also part of our network. With regards to talent, you know, one of the things that we learned from Michael, uh, which, you know, he was so smart about was, you know, when you're starting to build up talent, you know, and if you're building up talent in say clubhouse, you don't necessarily go and try and reel in the biggest star first. You really want to kind of go for the people who have the, who are on the cutting edge, who have the most influence, because one, those people are going to be much more engaged in a new platform. And then secondly, um, you know, that's who people are going to follow. Like, so the biggest star might show up one day and, and and do something, but they're not going to kind of attract all of the other talent to the platform. The kind of coolest person does this. And Michael had a great example of this at CAA, which was, you know, very early on um, they started a music branch in CAA. And the first person they signed was Prince, but they didn't sign. It wasn't Prince after Purple Rain he signed Prince after dirty mind. And for those of you, Prince fans, you know, the difference there where like, he was far, far from the biggest star, like Olivia Newton, John, I think was the biggest star of that, of that year. Um, And Prince was maybe, you know, in the top 300 or something, but he played 11 different instruments and he played them all amazingly well. And every musician thought that he was important. And so bringing Prince on kind of enabled CAA to build their whole music franchise and uh, you know that's much more how we thought about working with Clubhouse. You know, from a talent perspective, or you know, who are the people that that other people really respect? Uh, and uh, and that's you know that's how we work with them. But like I said, you know, it's it's mainly they built an amazing product that we're all on now, and uh, they did a great job of of making it an amazing place for creatives and and other people who want to have conversations with them. Um, the you know their fans and audience and other things.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think I have very little to add to that. So yeah, I mean, obviously we're you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the credit for the success of Clubhouse lies with the Clubhouse team. So <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> we, we will we will not take much credit, but, but yeah. we are happy to be on the team. Yeah, exactly. We we will continue to try to try to do our part. Um, so good. Okay, great. Um, and then second, actually, uh, another sort of super topical question, um, and this is a topic we'll probably come back to in the future, but I wanted to start with this question because I thought it was very provocative and, and sort of well constructed. So, uh, Rosalie Sapla asks, um, on, on, on the topic of SPACs, uh, as the new IPO. And so for people who haven't heard what SPACs are, SPACs are a, a basically it's, it's a, it's an older idea, but it's like become newly popular on wall street um it's called i think it's called like a special purpose acquisition company so the acronym is SPAC and basically it's 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 basically a it's a shell company that goes public and raises money with the idea that then that money will be used to buy a real business um, and effectively and so effectively what it is is it's another way for real businesses to go public but sort of in backwards order where sort of somebody else raises the money first and then and then that somebody else buys the company that goes public and then the combination of the SPAC plus the real business are you know then become public and so there's been this boom over the last basically two years. There's been this boom of, of, of spacs that have basically raised money in the public market. There's been hundreds hundreds of them now over the last couple of years, and and they're all out um, hunting for for deals. So they're all out hunting to basically buy companies uh, and then effectively take them public. Um, so so Ben, what would you say to a founder who pitched you a plan to grow as fast as they can uh, with the goal of selling to a spac um, uh, in in three to five years, and that context for the question is, I'm hearing companies in emerging industries, and, and, and by the way, this is true, an example of this, for example, would be in in um, uh, was it like um, a lot of these sort of hard science areas, like li- these sort of LiDAR yeah. companies, so these self-driving uh, technology companies, you know, um, or, or, you know, space, you know, some of these new space companies, you know, Virgin Galactic was one sure. of the first companies to go public with spec. Um, yeah. So she says, uh, hearing companies in emerging industries are exiting at huge multiples this way. Um, is this real?
1: Yeah, so that's that is a terrific question. So, like, let me first say um a few things on behalf of specs, <laughs> uh, because it's it's very in vogue to um say they're crazy and insane. Um but if you go back to the Netscape IPO, which you remember well, Mark, um I believe uh we were what, 15 months old when we went public. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, 15 months old when we went public, we were kind of the original. Internet IPO um, and the original internet company. and and look, it was a great IPO, and if you bought Netscape stock um, in the IPO and you held it, or you bought it any time along the way and you held it, you made money. So great company, an iconic company. It changed the industry. It could never happen today. There is no there are no fifteen months old companies going public. There are no 24-month-old companies going public. The average exit for a venture capital, you know, into an IPO is closer to nine years. Um, and there are only half the number of public companies today uh, than there were um, kind of in that era. And so what that all translates into is um, for the for the normal person, for the regular person who's not rich and accredited investor or kind of a venture capitalist, you have no access to the bulk of the growth companies during the bulk of the growth phase, um, which is just a really bad thing for society and a, and a bad thing in general. And there are many reasons for this um, that, you know, ranging from kind of the uh, just a series of regulations, which I, w- I won't go through all of them now, that kind of, you uh, tilted the balance you know, away from companies and towards uh, things like short sellers and litigators and, and other kinds of things. So it just became impossible slash dangerous uh, to go public if you needed money, um, which was kind of the original idea of the IPO was to raise money. But nobody does an IPO to raise money now, because if you do that, um, you are really subject to devastating an unbalanced and unfair attacks, quite frankly, uh, from people shorting your stock because it's just like a target on your back if you're ever going to have to raise money again to be a public company. Um, so, uh, what the SPAC does is it kind of guarantees the IPO. It says, however much money you need, we'll raise in, in advance before you're ever public. And then when you go public, you have the money. So, it kind of is a vehicle for. To enable more kinds of companies to go public, maybe more speculative companies, companies that have more growth in front of them. Um, but it gives kind of everybody an opportunity to invest. So I'd say that's really good. I think the uh, negative on SPACs is there are some very weird incentives around uh, what you get paid to create a SPAC. Um, and that, uh, you know, some of those incentives are, I think, very dangerous over time and may lead to uh, some really uh, rough rides in the SPAC market. But I'll I'll pass it to you, Mark, because I know you love this topic.
0: Yeah, so basically, yeah, there's a there's there's a and I would say there's um, there's a paper that just came out from academics at Stanford and another school. And I'll just look it up real quick. Um, It's called if you Google it, it's called a sober look at SPACs. Um, and if you yeah, if you Google a sober look at SPACs, you'll see this paper, and it's on it's on the website SSRN, so you can download it. And there's a summary of it at, at a Harvard website, so it's it's easy to read. Um, and it sort of goes through kind of the mechanics and the math of what's unfolding with SPACs. And so I think it's a it's a good kind of primer uh, primer to read. And so there's there's a couple of like really critical kind of details um, around SPACs. Um, uh So one is um, so basically when a, when 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 somebody when a when a te- when basically a team of people raises a SPAC, you know, it's like a couple of things happen. So one is the the bank gets paid up front uh, for raising the money because it's it's an IPO of its own. Um, so the, the the bank gets paid. So the, the banks banks love raising spacs. And ba- banks are out, you know, basically recruiting all kinds of teams with all kinds of interesting backgrounds, um, uh, you know, to raise spacs. Uh, you know, kind of for this reason. So the, the bank gets paid, and then the company the spac basically gets the cash in the offering. Um, and then basically the, the, a fuse is lit that has usually like a two-year timeframe on it, where the SPAC basically has to then go buy a real business in the next two years. Um, and of course, you know, you can imagine what follows, right, which is if you're the only SPAC in the market and you're out shopping for companies, like you'll have, you know, probably your pick of the litter to kind of buy a really good company. Um, but if you know, for example, you know, two hundreds specs are out in the market simultaneously. Right <laughs> like now. Like now, um, you know, it gets to be a little tougher, right? Because you're it gets like intense competition between the spacks, right? And so if if I'm running a, a high quality company and I'm considering selling to a spec, I, I now have many spacs that I can choose from. Um and so as an investor in the spac, you want to be a little bit cautious about this, right? Because of course this this will then affect the price right, of, that, the, that the SPAC is willing to pay. And I think, I think this is why, you know, to the question, this is why it seems like SPAC companies are kind of highly valued right now. I think part of it is literally it's that there are so many SPACs that they, they themselves, that competition is driving up the price of the companies they buy, which is sort of making it look like valuations are maybe higher than they would normally be. Um, and then there's another subtlety that the paper that I mentioned uh, talks about, which is um, just because a SPAC has raised money and just because it has selected a target and just because it is now consummating a deal with a target, does not mean that that money actually basically rides all the way through and actually becomes part of the acquired company. Um, and so there's typically a shareholder vote um, that happens at the time, not at the time this back raises the money, but at the time this SPAC selects the target, right, which is later. Um, right? Because you know when the spec raises money up front, nobody knows who the target is. right? And so the, you, you only find out as the investor in the back, you only find out who the target is later, and then you as a shareholder get a vote. As to whether or not, basically, that deal should go through, like right? whether whether the SPAC that you've invested in should be allowed to invest in that target, and 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 if and if you don't like the target, you can pull your money, you can sell the stock. Um, and so, SPACs also this interesting property of it, you know, if they come out and raise whatever five hundred million dollars in their original offering, that doesn't mean that they can definitely deliver five hundred million dollars to the target, right? Maybe it's only, maybe they can only deliver half of that, or maybe they can actually deliver none of that. And so what what ends up actually happening is there's actually this rotation that takes place that the paper talks about this, where the early investors in the SPAC are typically not the same investors who invest in the SPAC after the target's identified, right? And so if you read about, you know, if you read in the newspaper or see on CNBC that a SPAC is buying a company, you're like, okay, that's exciting, I want to invest. You know, you're going to go buy shares in that SPAC, but you're probably buying them from a hedge fund that's selling. Right. And you you probably want to be at least somewhat aware. You want to look at like the price and the volume uh, of, of the trading in the spec at that point to kind of see basically like, you know, is the smart money the hedge fund who's selling or is the smart money, you know, the, the new investors who are buying because of the target. Um, and then I would just say that the, the final thing is like, look, like at the end of the day, this is just a mechanic to get a company public. Um, as everybody who's ever run <laughs> a public company will tell you, like the main thing that determines the value of a public company once it's public is the quality of that company and the quality of that company's business. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be SPAC companies. I think or companies that go public through SPACs that are going to be very successful in the stock market and are going to make people a lot of money. And then I think there's there're going to be a bunch of companies that get SPACed and go public and, and end up crashing. Um, and and by the way, the exact same thing is true of IPOs, right? Um, and so there's there's nothing guaranteed about what happens in the aftermarket uh, with the SPAC anymore than there is with a normal IPO. Um, so anyway, back back to the question, um, and we we can spend. This is a very complex topic, and so if people are interested, want to ask more questions, we can come back to it in in, in later shows. But um, you know, I just say as you look at spacs, just like be aware that this is a different kind of thing um, than people are used to dealing with with stocks and IPOs. Um, read the paper I mentioned. I would say do some more research. You know, think hard about the quality of the business that that each spac is buying, um, and um, you know, and then and then basically think hard about basically just what it means that there are now so many spacs. Um, uh, and, and I should add, like to Ben's point, like there's something very exciting about the fact that there are all these facts. Like it basically indicates that the market wants more growth companies to go public, right? The market wants more companies to be public that are doing interesting things. and 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 there's there's a lot of goodness to that. like it's 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 good for the market and good for investors if more of those companies are public. Um but you know, to the extent that it becomes a frenzy and that it becomes a bidding war, um, you know it may it may really affect prices in a way that that ends up uh, you know ca- causing investors down the road to you know either not make as much money or actually lose money. So anyway, it's a quick watch through specs, but uh, thank thank you very much for that question. Ben, anything to
1: add? Yeah, no, i I think that's um that's right on the money. It, it's it's, it's going to be very thrilling to see what happens next, I have to say, because it is I mean, the speed at which these facts were created is is
0: quite spectacular, yeah. if uh, if the movie Wall Street were real life, Gordon gecko would definitely be raising a spec right now. <laughs> yeah, no question. There is no question. Um, I'm pretty so, sure
1: Brian Coppelman is going add- <laughs> have.
0: Uh, SPACs on the next uh, season of billions. Yes, X, X Capital has at least eight in, in registration right now. Um, okay, uh, next question. Um, and actually, this is a question on the other end of, of the sort of capital spectrum, which I, I thought was also a super interesting question. So Luke Harris asks, um, if things are going well, profitably bootstrapping a software startup, right? And remember, bootstrapping basically means growing a company with, without outside capital. So basically growing yes. a company just based on based on the revenue that you get. Um, so, if things are going well, profitably bootstrapping a software startup, um, how should founders think about raising venture capital or continuing to grow funded by earnings? And, Ben, why, why don't you start?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's a great question. It really um, tends to be a question of kind of competition and market size, is the way I would think about it. And they kind of go together in that if you have a really gigantic market, it always draws very aggressive competition. Um, but if you're going along in a market and the you know the, and the market is not that big and you've built out a real niche and it's a very esoteric problem uh, and there are no competitors and you're making money, then you know venture capital may just be like expensive and a pain in the butt. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a highly competitive market. Uh, or a big market, so like Clubhouse, I think is a great example of a company that was in a big market, and we they knew from the outset that big competitors would be coming, and and of course they are, and so in that scenario you need to go faster, um, and venture capital can be extremely helpful, not only on the capital side but in building out the team, you know as I spoke of earlier, uh, building the network that enables you you know, to compete with the behemoths. Uh, And I I, I would say, you know, at that point it's probably required and you'd be silly to not raise venture capital. So it it, kind of depends on, you know, where on the, on the spectrum you are there.
0: Yeah. And then let me um, kind of, you know, know, I'll ask myself kind of the most pointed version of this question and then I'll I'll answer it. So um, from, from both perspectives. And so like the most pointed version of this question is basically like, look, like the existence of these, basically, these success, two parts, basically, the, the the existence of very successful bootstraps, you know, large scale software companies, of which, by the way, there are many, uh, you know, that have done quite well, um, you know, basically shows that nobody needs venture capital, like you don't need venture capital, right? And furthermore, if you have a profitable bootstrap company, if you raise venture capital, you're, you know, basically, you're doing the VC a favor, but you're probably not doing yourself a favor. Um, uh, because basically, you've you've now basically raised the bar on how big your company has to get um before you as the founder, right, make as much money, right? Because you have to like, you know, the VCs now get their cut. Um, and so as a as a founder, you're sort of disadvantaged if, if you raise venture capital. Um, and so I, I think the 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 big thing on that it, when, when people kind of pose kind of the hostile form of the question, the big thing to notice about what they're doing is basically they're using what's called survivorship bias. Uh, the way the way they frame these these questions, these arguments, which is basically um, you see the companies that are successfully bootstrapped. Uh, and never raise money. Uh, what you don't see are all the companies that were bootstrapped and could have become big with venture capital, uh, who got obliterated. Um, and and the way they got obliterated was they just got like stomped on by more aggressive companies, right? And it, and by the way, maybe not our companies, but like you know, sales, just Salesforce.com, just as one random example, has like undoubtedly stepped all over and and you know, squashed you know many, many, I don't even know, hundreds or even you know, a thousand or more. Uh, you know, bootstrap software companies in different niches, you know, in their various markets, just because like Salesforce just had like has a level of critical mass, that's just very hard for, for, for bootstrap companies to match. Um, and so I, I do think you want to be, to Ben's point, like you want to be a little bit cautious about assuming that because it, it is possible for some people to bootstrap companies and never raise money and have, I would say, relatively less ambitious growth plans. Um, that can really set you up for real problems if somebody who does have money and does have a really aggressive growth plan basically comes at you. Um, and then, you know, you know survivorship bias, you, you you basically never hear of those companies. And so, and, and then the, the big takeaway is like, look, like there's, there's no single answer to this, um, you know, in our view. And it, it, it basically, this is one of those things where like, if you think it through carefully, there's no wrong decision here. Because like, if you think it through carefully and you conclude that you don't need venture and you should just continue growing company organically, then obviously that is what you should do. And, you know, we, we would, you know, we, we certainly would never argue with that. Like that, 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 that may well make sense in a particular case. You know, but conversely, like if you conclude that you have the sort of core of something that you'd like to grow to get much larger and that you'd like to be the company that, you know, that does the stomping um, as opposed to, you know, the company that might get stomped, like, or you just, right, or you just view that like, look, you just have a bigger opportunity. There's just like more that you want to do, right? You just want to have like a more ambitious growth plan. You want to have, you know, more salespeople. You want to have a, a more aggressive R&D agenda. You want to go buy other, you know, smaller companies. And you just, you know, you want to basically do something bigger. Um, you know, then in that case, you know, raising venture usually makes sense.
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely agree with that.
0: Good. Uh, thank you, Luke, for that question. Okay, good. Okay, Ben, we are going to go into. We have a two-part question from Roman uh, uh, Puzio, Um Two-part question. Um, both are, these are both uh, quite quite difficult questions. So we're, we'll now go into the deep end of the pool, which we like to do each time. So. Yeah. And Ben, I'll I'll start with you for this for this first one. So, and, and we've, we've touched on this in the past, but like this is a very specific pointed version of the question, which I think is worth addressing because yeah. it, it does come up a lot. Um, so as a startup founder, how do you, or a CEO, how do you fire executives the right way, um, especially when they own a percentage of the company, which is to say like, you know, that they're like, they've been in the company, like they've, you know, they've mattered and like they're important to the, you know, they've mm-hmm. been important to the company.
1: Yeah, so there's... Um... You know, it's funny because the, the, the different people uh, have different points of view on this, but I, I have a pretty strong point of view, and a lot of it came from um, my uh, mentor, the late uh, Bill Campbell, who, and he said to me, he said, Look, Ben, you have to take their job, but you don't have to take their dignity. And I think that's the kind of thing to keep in mind, you know, when you're in a situation like that, because when you build a company, there are—you know—you have people who are can be very effective for a period, and then you know, for many reasons, the company gets much bigger, the nature of the company changes. Um, you know, they it outgrows them, or like you change direction, and their skill set is no longer relevant. There's a lot of reasons why you end up having to fire an executive, and look, you know. I think so often CEOs make the mistake of getting into, well, whose fault is it that they're getting fired? And of course it's always their fault <laughs> um, because you're you and, and you kind of look at it through, you know, you being the protagonist and the hero in your own story and all that kind of thing. Um, but if you're honest about it, what you realize is like, <clears throat> you know, you recruited this person in, they gave you, You know, in most cases, particularly if they have ownership and you haven't fired them, you know, right away, which is how they do get the ownership because they vest. um, Then they they were good for a period, and then something changed, and that change I think you know you are responsible for, and they're and you know they didn't adapt to that change, and they're responsible for it. So it's a shared responsibility. And I think that uh, so when you have the conversations, it's really important to acknowledge that and say, look, you know, up to this point, you've done a great job. But where we are as a company, you know, where we've gotten to and I, I always used to say, like, some of it's my fault. Um, I didn't get you ready for this. But, you know, we have to go in a different direction because, you know, for the good of everybody here um, who works here. Uh, you know, at this point we can bring in somebody who's got a better fit on skill set, knowledge and all the things that we need going forward. Um, But then, you know, and this is where people differ a lot. Like, I don't think it's, you know, I always think it's the right thing to let the executive basically describe their own departure. Now there's a new thing where it's like, Oh no, that's dishonest. If somebody said (laughs) whatever they left for family reasons or, or the reasons are but you know like what is the point of taking their dignity what is the point of getting in front of the whole company and say yeah i, I fired them they they worked here three years they did a great job and then i kept their ass or whatever it makes you feel good but like i, I don't think it helps anybody in the company and it does really um, make it an unhappy departure when you do that now some you know like i've seen executives who want to you to say that you fired them um, but I think that should be their choice.
0: Yeah. Then I just add, you know, another kind of piece of advice that you either get or learn over the years is like, you know, another really bad thing that can happen, you know, is, is surprise. Um, you know, which is just like, you know, as, as the executive getting fired, like, look, I had no idea, like, I didn't know, um, you know, that there was an issue. Uh, ben, you want you want to talk a little, a little about a little about that, that dynamic, or, or what to do to try to head that off? Yeah.
1: So this is so so my experience with ceos is they give either give feedback all the time or never <laughs> until it's the end right so th- there's very few people who give you know quality feedback even like okay if you're doing it once a year in a review then you're not really giving quality feedback that's a bunch of bullshit um so you're either like on every single issue letting everybody know where they stand to some degree or you're never giving feedback. And the reason is the only way to give feedback is to desensitize people to feedback. And if you give it very seldom, then they're gonna overreact to it. And so you just stop doing. Um, So you've got to (laughs) give feedback all the time. I didn't like the way you did this. I did like the way you did that. Um, This isn't working. That is working. We're behind on this. This function's all screwed up. And if you're not doing that, then then they're never going to be able to hear the feedback anyway um, because it's just too big a thing to hear from the CEO once a year that you fucked something up and so that's right you know the way you manage it going into it will kind of help the end quite a bit cuz people can see it coming if you're continually unhappy and they can't make the correction
0: yeah and of course the or the, the twist I've seen a lot over the years is just like you know <laughs> a lot of times one of the reasons you have to fire somebody is because they're not listening. Uh, yes. <laughs> right. And so and the, the problem with that, like they just literally like, you'll just, you'll have people who just like, you know, they may be good in some ways, but like, they're just too stubborn. You know, you've given them the feedback. They just don't change what they do. They keep doing the bad, you know, whatever they're doing bad things. They keep doing the bad things, um, you know, or, or just like, they just like, or they're just, you know, very strong willed and they just like, they don't want to hear bad feedback and they just, they literally don't listen don't process it. And so, you know, and that 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 is an issue, kind of in other aspects of how somebody will do their job, right? Because if they're not listening to you, they're probably not listening to other people. Um, and so then you 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 can get these cases. I've seen this, this is a bunch where you you do finally fire somebody, and 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 you think you've given them all the feedback along the way, and they are just completely shocked and stunned and surprised.
1: Yeah, although I do think that. Um, it, so look, there are two. There are different personality types. So some people, you tap very lightly on the shoulder. And they're extremely sensitive and they'll sulk for a week about it and and that kind of thing. And other people are extremely hard-headed and you have to be like so direct with them. You feel like they're going to quit because, you know, who's going to take that kind of stern communication? But in my experience, at least, like everybody will listen if you say it strong enough. (laughs) Um, Yeah. you know, but but if you if you use that kind of strong language, like we like we've had people at the firm over time who are extremely sensitive and then extremely hard headed, uh, and you can't you you have to use the right technique with the right people because if you give the very strong feedback to somebody who's sensitive, they're gonna they're they're gonna quit. Like they'll just be so like horrified that you did that. But if you give that to somebody who has, you know, like who's just bullheaded, um, then that that does tend to be the only way to get them to listen.
0: Yeah. By the way, I've never asked, I've actually never asked you this. Um, do you, a lot of people will give the advice of uh, when you give somebody feedback and give it to them in the, in the famous shit sandwich. So here's, yeah, something, yeah, good, yeah, yeah. here's something good <laughs> about you to, to warm you up. Here's something bad about right. you, which is the thing I really want to tell you. And then here's something, here's something else good about you to try to recover your ego. Um, do, you, do you believe in the shit sandwich?
1: Well, so I think that technique is um, when applied that way doesn't work on really senior people because they all know about it. (laughs) And they're going and you start saying something nice to them and they're like, "Okay, what do you really want to tell me? Like they'll literally say that to you. I've had people say that to me when I tried that. So (laughs) but but the concept is important, um, which is people want to know your intentions. So there's two things. There's what are you telling them and why are you telling it? And are you is the why if they interpret the why as because you want to get them the fuck out of the company and you're just walking them down a path, then they're never going to adjust to the feedback. But if they interpret the why as he wants to help me because like he wants me to stay, uh, but like I'm not doing something right, then that's much better. So you do want to make sure that. The intention of the message and your intention as their manager is something that they understand and can feel. Um, But I think you're better off building that up over time with many conversations and questions. And it's why it's important to be interested in people's personal lives and other kinds of things. You know, it it comes down to do they feel like your intention is in their interest or against their interest? Because it's very hard to listen to somebody when. Uh, you think that they're working against your interests, right. and so, so there's a real truth to the shit sandwich thing, but it's just too fucking transparent to go. I really, li- you're you're doing such a fantastic job on all these things. Um, but there is this thing that I really don't like that you're doing, and you're a great person. Like, if you say that, people right. are just like, okay, you did not need to do that. Like, I'm not an idiot. Right.
0: I'm not a kid. Do you think right. culturally, do you think people were better at taking negative feedback? 25 years ago or do you think they're better at it today? Like in terms of just <laughs> well, where the, the culture is going. I can I I I I argue this one either way.
1: Um, I, I don't know. Look, I, I I think it's always tough if you get, there's a much bigger sense of entitlement at work um, now than there was kind of when I started. Um, yep. You know, people, but entitlement is kind of a thing that you either feed or you starve. Yeah. And I think that if you get somebody from who is in an environment where like the environment is like we're all doing this for each other. We're trying to build something greater than ourselves. Everybody's making a sacrifice. And, um, you know, nothing is for you personally. It's all for all of us. You know, if you're coming from that environment, then you know, they can take feedback fine. If you're coming from an environment where it's like, oh, you know, I'm protesting because we have regular juice, but we don't have organic juice in the fridge. And like, I want to be my own mini CEO and I want my career development to be the, you know, the number one thing in this company, then that person's going to be harder to get feedback to unless they get reoriented. And yeah. Andy Grove had a great line on this, which is, um, You really need people in a company who have the right kind of ambition, which means ambition for the company um, first. (laughs) And, you know, the wrong kind of ambition is ambition for themselves, uh, independent of the company. And, you know, the latter is just tough. And I think there are more people with the kind of latter mindset these days than at least when I started. But, you know, um, I think if the environment is right like it. to be honest with you, it's way more fun to work when everybody's on a team and you're all working together than, you know, if you have a bunch of individuals all maximizing their own career. So it's yep. not that hard to convert. You know, there's a lot of times you can convert people into, I, I would say, a better way of all wanting to grow together and take feedback and get better as opposed to just demand more and more shit with no improvement.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay, good. Well, let's go to the second question then. Yeah. Um, just sort of related, but but, uh, in a different direction. So what do you do about an investor in your company? And let's assume it's like a a scenario (laughs) like we deal with, like a a venture capital firm or an angel investor or somebody in a private company, Um, an investor in your company that doesn't align with the mission, vision and direction of your company um, and that you're presumably having trouble with. um, Can you fire an investor? Yeah. You you know, from a legal standpoint, you
1: really can't. Uh, And this is, this is why, like the the advice that we give, that's the best advice that gets taken the least, <laughs> is right. this advice here. And you know, like part of it is because we're investors. So how, how do you believe us at this point in time? But you know, you really want to pick investors that you want to be in business with. You know, so much often people will optimize for okay, like what's the maximum price I can get on my deal, um, even if it doesn't even materially change dilution or anything um, over, you know, who's the investor has the best reputation. I've talked to the people they've worked with. Um, they're there in good times and bad. They really add value. They're somebody that's I'm going to want on my team. And by the way, if I succeed, I'm going to want them to make a lot of money because I really uh, have tremendous respect for them and, and this and that and the other. Rather than doing that, you know, the difference between whatever – 200 pre and 215 pre is what you make the decision on, um, but you can never get rid of these people, <laughs> and they can be very like a bad investor can be extremely destructive. Somebody who doesn't really understand um, what it means to build a company, uh, doesn't know the difference between the spreadsheet and the business, like all these kinds of things, which is very very common in the investing world. Uh, you know, you're 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 it's like getting married in the Catholic church and you know, in the like 1400s, like maybe if you're, or the 1500s, you know, if you're King Henry, the King Henry VIII, like maybe you can get an annulment maybe, <laughs> but like you right. have to do all kinds of crazy fucking favors. And maybe you just have to convert to Protestantism or you, you know, it's like that dumb, he had to create his own church cause he couldn't get it annulled. But like, that's how it is with an investor. You're basically in that situation. Uh, so I, I would just say, Really, be careful about who you let invest in your company.
0: Yeah, sometimes when we give this advice, we give the feedback being like, "Oh, you know, yeah, you know, this investor might, you know, who knows whether they're the right one for us." But like, look, we we have the contracts wired so that they, you know, they have no rights. They like can't fire you, the CEO. You know, there's all these things they can't do, and so presumably they can't cause us any damage. And and I guess I I would say, I would say we have found over the years we have found that there are many 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 ways for an investor to damage a company. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and inv- bear in mind, like investors, like they don't have day jobs, right? They don't like go to work and like make products. Um, they like have <laughs> all all day long to sit around and like think about their investments, um, for better or for worse. Um, and they have like lots of like lawyers and other people to help them do that. Um, and so, um, and then, you know, you, you might also say, well, like, you know, why would they do that? Like, isn't that, you know, kind of contrary to their best interests and, I would say number one, like their sense of what's in their best interest may not be the same as yours. In fact, they might be wildly different. And then number two, at least I've seen a lot of cases where you know people get emotional um, and ego gets into it, um, and things become a battle of wills. Um, or you know, people investors have like other psycho- psychological issues in some cases. Um, and so I, you know, I have seen investors like basically try to burn down you know companies that they're actually invested in, uh, like oh, yeah. to, to like almost irrational degrees, or, or, or I would say to, to clearly irrational degrees, and. And, and so, and then it's hard to just like visualize the sort of set of techniques that they can use to damage you. But like, I just you know, there's just, you know, I'll just give a, a few examples. So one is like, you know, they can go like try to fire sell your stock, whether they have the legal right to do so or not. Right. And, and it doesn't mean that they'll be able to consummate a transaction, but in the process of basically trying to force you to allow them to fire sell their stock, you know, they may just take it out and like shop it. Um, and then and lower the, the value
1: of your company. So yeah, you raised yep. that 300 million from them and they're out in the market trying to sell it for 50 million. Yep. every investor pays attention to that
0: yeah everybody knows and then and then the word on that gets in you know into the environment and then they thing you know executive candidates hear that and then customers hear that and your employees hear that and the press hears that um and so you get this like massive you know it's it's the opposite of brand halo from a good investor it's the brand damage from a from a from a sideways investor so there's that you know they can they can agitate inside the company they can agitate with the board they can agitate with your executive team they can call your you know they can call your executives and encourage them to run a coup on you Um, you know, they can, they can, I mean, it's just like, they can, they can leak stuff to the press, which happens a surprisingly large that there are, there are press outlets that run almost entirely on the basis of investor leaks. Um, and there are some surprisingly negative stories, um, that were running those outlets, um, that come from investors. Um, and so there, there's just, there are a lot of tools, uh, in the toolkit, uh, to be able to fuck up one of your own companies, like if you really want to. Um, yep. or 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 to or to or, or or to put pressure on the CEO, or like try to get the CEO fired, or other things. Um, you know, the other thing to bear in mind here, this is probably a longer conversation, but um, something that founders like really believe that I think is not true is that you can somehow get protection against getting fired uh, by your investors. And like, it is technically true, like legally true, right? That you can like get that protection, but in practice, you can't. Um, and the reason, in practice, you can't is because the thing that causes uh, CEOs to get forced out of the company—it's almost never the investors, like actually coming in and doing the firing. Uh, it's almost always because of a revolt on the management team uh, and a revolt of, of the surrounding ecosystem. And so, it's it's very hard as a as a as a CEO who you know even has theoretical protection against getting fired uh, to withstand a scenario where he he or she loses the faith of the management team, the board, and the investor base. Um, and so if you have agitated investors and they're sort of fomenting an environment in which they're building sort of a negative wall of sentiment towards you, like you can end up, you can end up losing your job, even if you have a legal right to, to, to keep it forever. Right. Cause like at the end of the, at the end of whatever the process is, it'll, you know, you know, presented to you as a choice basically of like either you leave or like the company goes down in flames. Um, and this is where you see even, you know, super strong-willed CEOs flinch, um, and, and, and resign, um, rather than, uh, you know, be responsible for the implosion of their company. So. So anyway, yeah, sideways, sideways investors can lead directly into those kinds of scenarios, um, and so I would say, like the, you know, like a lot of things in life, the actual relationship like matters a thousand times more than whatever's in the contract, and the actual behavior matters a thousand times more than whatever's whatever's in the contract. And that goes for any
1: contract, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> not, not just with investors. I mean, you know, the the relationship is the business relationship. You know, if you go to the contract, you you have a your, your relationship is gone.
0: You're in, you're in dire straits. Like almost by definition, if you're in the contract, you're already in a lawsuit, like you're already in court. You know, you're, you're already in just like very dire, dire, dire straits as compared to obviously where you, where you want to be. Um, so anyway, yes, we, we, we highly recommend, we highly recommend, I, we didn't actually answer the question, uh, what do you do about an investor in your company? Um, and, 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 and I think, but like the the legit, the legit answer is like, don't have those investors in your company. Like do, 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 do your diligence up front and, and, and don't have investors in your company that will behave like that. By the way, I would also say, um, uh, you know, investor, let me put it this way. Investor behavior is Lindy. Um, which is to say that um the best gauge on how an investor will act in the future is how they've acted in the past. Um, yep. and so, and this is where like reputation in the investing world like really matters, which is like look it, there there are people in the tech investing world who have been investing for you know thirty years, forty years, in some cases and have just stellar reputations. And you can talk to literally dozens or hundreds of references who will tell you how great they are and about how reliable they are, you know, in a crisis. And like you know those people are worth their weight in gold. And then, you know, there are other people where they've got these incredibly like, you know, let's say dy- dynamic checkered backgrounds, you know, where some people like them, but they've got a bunch of people who will say, wow, like I was under pressure and that person really freaked out and did all these bad things. And like, and basically you, you can just basically, I think in most cases, extrapolate forward um, from, from how they've been yeah. in the past in other, in other circumstances.
1: And, and like with, you know, like hiring people, a not glowing reference is right. basically a horrible reference.
0: Right. Yes. Right. Yes. He was fine. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was yeah, not, He not didn't good. damage the company. <laughs> you know, he didn't cause too many problems. Um, good. Okay. Well, actually, that bridges us into the next topic. And Ben, uh, Ben pre-registered that he doesn't he doesn't have a good answer to this one, so I I, I will start <laughs> with this one. So, uh, and I told him that the fact that he doesn't have a good answer for this is a good answer to this, and I'll explain why yeah. why I say that. So, uh, Ali Khalid asks. Uh, how can founders maintain their mental health? St- how can founders maintain their mental health stability? From your own experience, i.e., tips, tricks, and hacks. So this is something that I've really kind of really worked hard on wrapping my head around for the last, you know, whatever 25 or 30 years that I've been doing variations on this stuff. And and my so my big conclusion, my big conclusion is basically that like I used to in the old days I used to basically be like. I would say pretty stoic on these topics. And so it's basically like, look, like starting a company is a high pressure endeavor and like you should just put up with the pressure and not complain about it. But like, I think there's there's a deeper underlying issue, um, which is when you're the founder of a company um, and, 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 you know, if, if, you're a, put it this way, if you're a good founder, if you're a responsible founder, like you will take on the emotional weight of the company and the emotional weight of everything going wrong in the company basically all the time. And I and I find that to be true of basically, you know, essentially all, all the good <laughs> founders I've worked with. Um, it was certainly true of me. Um, and so like you do take on this just like severe level of emotional weight and it's not really so much like a stoicism thing or a manly thing. It's just like, it's a, it's a lot of weight, like to take on the burden of everything going wrong in a company. Cause like stuff is going wrong in every company all the time, um, including the like super successful ones. And so to take on all that emotional burden is like a real thing, not just for the quality of life of the founder, but also for the founder's ability to be effective right cuz like a founder who gets like literally like clinically depressed or like has trouble sleeping like you know is not going to be as effective you know obviously actually doing their job and helping to make the company better um and so like this is a real issue and then there's this really like you know kind of you know how to say amazing um kind of thing that happens where um part of being a founder is projecting confidence um and projecting confidence inside the company right that you are like confident that the company's on the right track and that it's going to do well but also confidence outside the company to investors and to, you know, candidates and to reporters and to customers. Right. Um, and you know, when you project confidence, like you, you can't go out, you can't be mopey, right. You can't be sad and depressed and anxious. Like you have to, like, you have to project confidence. Like you have to look like somebody who knows what they're doing and you have to like, actually like, you know, present yourself as like, okay, like look like, you know, yeah, you know, maybe we have issues, but like this thing is on track and any issues we have, we're going to fix them. Like I'm totally confident in the future of the company. Um, and so what ends up happening is basically if you've got like a thousand founders, you know, kind of in, 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 you know, you take a group of a thousand founders, like you have all thousand founders basically acting like they're completely confident, um, right, and that they don't have any sort of emotional issues. Um, and, and I often have, you, you, you see this at like parties <laughs> in the old days when we used to have parties, um, you know, you basically see this, you know, at sort of parties, lots of founders are at where one, you know, one founder will go up to another founder and be like, Oh, you know, Mary, Hey, it's so nice to see you. How's your company going? And Mary like grits her teeth and says, my company's going just fine. How's your company going? And the first person like Charlie is like, my company's going just fine. And like, they're both lying. Right. They're both like, they're both, you know, in, internally, they're just like whirling with anxiety. But like they can't even bring themselves to admit it to each other, right? Because because of the need to project confidence, and so and then you have this this thing where basically as a consequence, at least my experience, uh, every founder sort of assumes they're the only one, right? Under that level of pressure, they're the only one that's actually basically sitting there living with all these like basically whirling emotions around all the things that are going wrong, and so as a consequence, like it's it's an extraordinarily high level of stress and pressure, and then it ends up basically getting all internalized. Um, now. Some people are just really good at dealing with stress and pressure, and you know, I would say they're they're lucky and 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 they should do that. Some people have you know really good therapists and like are really open with, with dealing with issues, and, and and that's fantastic for those people. Uh, <laughs> a lot of us don't have either of those things, um, and so I, I think this is something that it would like we would all be better like as a community and industry. I think we would all be better being somewhat more open about this. Um, And I would say, you know, part of that is just being somewhat more aware of it. Uh, Part of it is being somewhat more accepting of it. Um, A peer support, I think is invaluable. Um, And so, you know, the ability for founders to talk to one another and let their guard down um, and be able to, um, you know, actually like share uh, on this basis without feeling like they're exposed. And and obviously you can't do that with everybody, but like, you know, if you can like establish basically a set of friends who are going through similar things uh, who you can share with. And then, you know, look, the other thing we talk a lot about, right, is like with our companies, is like, look, it probably makes sense to try to have at least a handful of people who are on the outside of the company who you think you can really talk to and trust, right? And so these, and these, by the way, these might not be board members. These might be like advisors or coaches or mentors, right? So it might be like retired CEOs, right? Or it might be, you know, founders of, at a later stage of development uh, or, or, you know, people in, a, in other, you know, for, for that matter, people in other high stress professions um, who who you can really basically like have. The kind of you know intimacy with to both be able to trust them and also be able to speak openly uh, with somebody, um, and so you know basically making sure that there's some support network in place uh, for people to talk to, I think, can be super helpful. So Ben, uh, see what you think of all this.
1: <laughs> I think that's all uh, correct, and I feel good because I did my part on writing about how badly I felt when I ran loud, loud, and in uh, the hard thing about hard things. So. Look, I, I mean, it's really hard. I, I wish I had a good answer. I mean, I, I, I felt pretty badly the whole time things were imploding on me. So yeah. um, I, I I don't know actually how you feel better because I never felt better when I was in that circumstance. I will say this, you know, in building um, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, it was just a lot easier. I mean, partly we never got in anywhere near the trouble we got in, in either Netscape or uh, LoudCloud Opsware. But, um, you know, having gone through that, you know, things that bothered other people in the firm didn't bother me at all. (laughs) Like, like I can't tell you how not bothered I've been by any crisis. Uh, So you, you can get better at it.
0: Yeah, I would say, yeah, that is, that is a huge, yes. If you can get through it, that actually is a huge payoff, yeah. which is, yeah, you start to get a real sense of perspective of what trouble actually is um, yeah. and things. Uh, there's a great, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of all time book on this topic is Marcus Aurelius, uh, his meditations. Um, and he, you know, he says, it, 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 it's a great book. Cause he, he's talking about like how to be strong basically in the, in the face of adversity is like the theme of the book. And, and you know, he, and he actually never wrote the book for publication. Like he wrote the book basically as a set of notes to himself. So it's one of these books where it's like these aspirational statements about how he wanted to be. And he says, you know, basically you want to be like the rock. Uh, basically, you want to be like the rock at the edge of the ocean. Um, you know, on the on the shore, and the rock that basically the waves pound against. You know, basically constantly, and the rock never moves. And it's yeah. like it's one of those things. that's like, wow, that would be great. Um, you know, the gap between where I am now and like that, is, it seems really big. Um, yep. Like, I sure don't feel like that rock, but yeah. I mean, look, after you've been pounded for a while um, uh, you know, you do, you do start to build up some level of uh, of callous uh, and and some level of like ability to, I would say at the very least, put things in perspective, like at at the very least understand sort of the gradations of like trouble to, you know, real trouble to like, you know, terminal trouble.
1: Yeah. Um, Like if you've gotten out of like dire, dire, dire trouble, um, then it does give you tremendous confidence that you can get out of medium trouble. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many, we, we, we've had plenty of medium trouble at the firm, but
0: yeah,
1: so that, that's today. no
0: problem. This goes back to the great Sean Parker line, which I love quoting because it makes people so uneasy, which is uh, uh, being a founder is like chewing glass, especially you, yeah. eventually you start to like the taste of your own blood. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. No, that's, that's it. Like. I have not used that quote once anybody in person without them looking queasy. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> no, that's good. I, I like that one a lot. Um, okay, we're going to close. Uh, we've, we're almost done, but uh, we're going to close. We're going to uh, inaugurate a new segment for the very end of the show, uh, which is uh, books of the week. So the the books that we've been enjoying, that kind of uh, provide some useful perspective on the kinds of things we talk about. So we we just have I think we just have time for one. So Ben, I know you've been reading a book that's made a big impact on you. So maybe touch on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that you recommended actually on the show, yeah. uh, "The Weirdest People in the World," which. Um, Is, you know, if you're interested in culture and um, how it works and how it evolved, and, you know, like the key to generational wealth, the why innovation happened, how, like, why democracy happened in some parts of the world and not others, um, and, you know, how that relates to weird things like you know, monogamous versus polygamous marriage and these kinds of things. This book is just amazing. Um, and really, uh, kind of clarified a lot of things in kind of how the, not only how the world evolved, but kind of how our current culture is working and, you know, dumb mistakes that we're making. Cause we're, uh, I would just say mistaking kind of one cause for another, uh, and uh, it's you know, just brilliantly done um, and uh, super enlightening. Yeah. You know, so plus, it's good. got the difference between oral and written cultures, which is fascinating, uh, yes. and uh, and spectacular.
0: Yeah, it starts with this amazing. He goes through the science um, is uh, relatively recent. so He goes through the science of basically what happens to physical brain structure uh, when people go from or an oral culture where everything is sort of communicated, you know, by you know personally, but you know, by by speech uh versus a written culture or literary culture where, where people actually communicate you know over over time through through writing um and it turns out there's actually a change in the physical brain structure a non-genetic change in the physical brain structure which is your brain basically to, to accommodate written language your brain needs basically additional processing space um capacity to basically deal with written language um, and so what it does is it is it recruits that space from the part of your brain that's used for recognizing faces uh, and facial expressions. Um, and so literally your brain gets rewired to get better at dealing with writing and then correspondingly worse at interpreting faces. Um, and it was at this point in the book where I was like, oh, I think he's writing about me.
1: <laughs> yep, 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 you're, you're not good at <laughs> facial recognition, I can not, attest to
0: that. Not even a little bit. But, yeah, but very good that. at reading. Yeah, yeah. No, you're very good at reading. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a really great book. Um, the, for people who didn't hear the title, the title is, is, it's a great title. The weirdest, W-E-I-R-D-E-S-T, the weirdest people in the world. And and weird is an acronym. Um, the, it's an acronym uh, the, in cultural anthropology that stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Um, so uh, he he's, specifically, it's a book about about us. Um, and, um, that, that's the title of the book, the weirdest people in the world. And the author is Joseph Henrich, H E N R I C H. And he's the generally considered to be the leading uh, anthropologist of his generation. So it's a, it's a very, you know, exhaustively researched and footnoted book, um, that goes through like all basically his entire life's research. Um, so yes, highly recommended. Um, and I will, uh, i add mine on next time when we have more time, but it 7:59. We're um, an hour on the nose. So thank you again, right. everybody for joining us. And we will see you again next week.
1: Okay. Thank you. And thank you, David and Felicia, for getting the room started.
0: Absolutely. Okay. We'll see see you soon. Thanks, everyone.